Um, I was thinking about life recently, which is something that I occasionally like to do. And uh, I was thinking about how it's really easy to get bogged down and busy to the point that we kind of neglect to think about important spiritual truths. Have you ever felt that before? I certainly have. Uh, life kind of has a way of creeping up on you and clouding out and narrowing in and closing around us to make us feel as if the most important thing is life today. Or worse, that the only thing of importance is life today. And uh, I, there's an illustration I'm going to use about snorkeling, and I, should, I feel like I should say up front that I'm not like a master snorkeler. I just kind of dabble, and that's even putting it uh, a little generously. We have, Michigan, we have lakes in Michigan, so we kind of snorkel in Michigan every, every once in a while and look for Petoskey stones and whatnot. But it really is more of scrounging. We're not really doing anything high-tech. My goggles are from Walmart. It makes, it makes lets you know anything about that. But the idea of snorkeling, I think it can serve as kind of an analogy or an illustration of what life can be sometimes because snorkelers put on all this gear to go into an environment that they're not really meant to stay in very long. And the, all the gear helps them to stay there longer, like the fins, the goggles with the, the anti-fog spray, and the snorkel itself, all these things. Then you know, a snorkeler will put those things on, jump into the water, and stay down there for a prolonged time. And they only come up for air when necessary because they want to stay down there. And I think there's something of an image for our life, uh, how we sometimes live even as believers there. Every morning we dive into the waters of life and we only come up for air when our lungs burn or when we're desperate for a breath. We're kind of like the snorkeler at times who gets so busy with life under there that they forget that where they truly belong is up here on dry ground. And I think it's easy... Um, when it comes, easy to live that way when it comes to remembering our glorious future hope as believers. The future hope that feels so far away sometimes. It feels so uh, distant and it's hard to fathom and imagine. It's, it's so much less tangible than the things that we can feel and see. And frankly, it's just sometimes hard to live in light of our future hope. And I think you and I feel this at times. Now the hope that we're talking about this morning is the hope of our resurrection as believers. That someday we will be gloriously and powerfully and permanently raised from the dead with new bodies. But when we think about life, it, it's often hard to live in light of that future hope. Just examine your own heart. For one, I, we, we kind of live in a culture that would deny all the things that you can't confirm through observation, the things that you can't confirm or verify by by science, right? If I can't observe it and replicate it consistently, then I, I won't believe it. And that mindset of our culture can subtly slip into how we process the world too, because there is certainly no denying that the things that we can, we can touch and see and feel and smell uh, are powerful influences on us. Those are things the world will tell us that we can really be certain about, those things. But, you know, start to talk to me about how I will raise from the dead, and I start to get a little bit uneasy. Because to talk about how we will raise from the dead implies that I first have to die, and nobody wants to think about that. And more than that, whatever happens after death is kind of in the realm of pure faith, right? That's what they'll tell us. Uh, as if nothing else you need faith for. Only spiritual things. 
And then when you add in that how life is busy, like it's just hard sometimes not to think about how there's lunch to eat soon and kids to put down for naps and bills to pay and futures to plans and uncertainties to swallow and problems to navigate and all these things. And then it's Monday and we do it all over again. As a reality of life, it's just often difficult and distracting. And if we're not careful, we will forget important spiritual truths out of sight, out of mind. And the problem with that is if our resurrection as believers is out of mind, then we will lose a key motivation for sacrificial Christian ministry. If, that's, uh, if you're the type to take notes, here is the main point from our passage this morning. Resurrection certainty motivates sacrificial ministry. Resurrection certainty motivates sacrificial ministry. Um, when I first studied this passage, there were several things that surprised me. One of them was just how God really wants us to be certain that we will raise from the dead as believers. He doesn't want us to have doubts. He doesn't want us to have questions. He doesn't want us to waffle. He wants us to be certain that there's a day coming when our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will be given glorious new bodies. And then he wants you, furthermore, to know how the certainty of that should affect how you live right now and tonight and tomorrow because they're connected. Paul will connect them for us. So what I want, you to, what I want to do this morning is uh, nothing, nothing too crazy. I just want to remind you of something you already know. I believe that you have heard this before, you already know it, but what I'm praying is that the Holy Spirit will cause you to well up with faith and assurance that yes, this is true. As the Spirit presses the significance of the truth of the Bible onto your hearts, my prayer is that you would just go, amen, this is true, and then let it affect how you live tonight and tomorrow. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is our passage. And, uh, you know, when we kind of jump into one passage and kind of a one-off sermon where we've not been in a series and we don't understand uh, something of the context because it wasn't preached last week, it's sometimes helpful to just orient ourselves to the book as a whole and to the chapter in particular. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, We're just going to try to orient ourselves to 1 Corinthians 15 in context, and then that will help us to understand our verses, which are verses 20 to 28. So, um, let's go ahead and orient ourselves to this book. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you can tell that Paul has a lot of issues that he wants to deal with with the, with the, first, with the church at Corinth. Um, and oftentimes, there were one or two issues that caused Paul to say, all right, because this is going on in the church, then I'm going to write this content, and it's preserved for us in the Bible. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you're going to find that one of the issues there were that uh, in the church at Corinth, there were divisions and jealousy among the people and how they related to the, to the leaders. So some followed Paul and some followed Apollos, and it, there was this kind of division and jealousy. And so Paul writes to address that in chapter 3. In chapter 5, Paul is writing to address sexual immorality that had gone into the church that was of a worse kind than the kind um, normally used by unbelievers. Chapter 6, you see there's lawsuits among believers. Chapter 7, there are issues of sexual ethics, both for singles and in married couples. Chapter 10, he writes on issues of idolatry. And then in chapter 11, he writes about those who are perverting the Lord's Supper. And when you see that there are these different issues that cause Paul to write, when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, a decent question to ask is, okay, now why is Paul writing this particular chapter? 
Um, and when you look at verse 12 of chapter 15, you get a pretty clear statement as to why Paul's writing this. He says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which he is, then how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? That really was the issue that occasioned Paul to write this chapter. Now, a decent question to ask again is, all right, they were denying the resurrection from the dead. Were they denying the resurrection of Jesus? Or were they denying the resurrection of believers in general? Um, I think we can answer that by looking at verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 through 5, you see there, there's this early apostolic summary of the gospel. And one of the key components of the gospel is what you see there, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So part of the gospel, inherent in the gospel, is the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says that they believed this in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And then in verse uh, 1, he calls them brothers. So these are people who believe the gospel, and part of the core of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead. So I don't think that they were denying the resurrection of Jesus. I think what they were denying was the resurrection of, Jesus, of uh, believers in general. The resurrection of the rest of us. And I don't think that they realized the significance of that, that if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you lose some very significant things. That, uh, Paul's argument there is in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, generally, you might see there, then not even Christ has been raised. That's the problem with, with what they were saying. If you deny the resurrection of believers generally, then here's an implication you, you didn't see coming, that Christ himself isn't even raised. And that's a huge problem if you're going to be claiming to be believers. And I don't think they had any idea why it was so important to God that believers are certain that they will rise from the dead in glorious new bodies. And so what we find in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the bulk of this chapter is given to Paul telling Christians that you will be raised from the dead. And then he addresses certain questions about their resurrections. So Paul's going to continue this in verse 13 where he really does bring down the hammer and says, if you say that this is true, here's what happens. Here's what you lose. Um, if there's no resurrection of believers, then let's say you're right. And when I pull that thread, the whole thing starts to unravel. And the first thing you lose is the most important thing of all, that Jesus himself rose from the dead. So as you scan through those verses, verse 14, you, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. He says in verse 15 that we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we're saying he rose Jesus, but he actually didn't, if this is true. And so you're like a false prophet. That's a huge problem. You don't want to be one of those. And he goes on, verse 17, he says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Wow. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, who have died, who are believers, they're not anywhere. They're just perished. They're gone if Christ has not been raised. Then in verse 19, he really brings it home and says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most pitiable wretches on planet Earth if Christ has not been raised. Um, now, I don't, know, I don't know everyone here this morning, but I, I, I wish I did. I truly wish I did. But if you're here and you're kind of an interested observer, or you're exploring Christianity a little bit, then 
you should know that this is one of the reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so important to believers, so important to this church, because so many critical pieces of our faith are centered on the fact that Jesus did not remain in the grave. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we lose everything, and we really might as well pack up and just walk out the doors. Because, uh, you know, tomorrow we may die, and if we have hope only in this life only, then let's eat, drink, and be merry now because we might not have any chance to do it tomorrow. But to be a Christian, you must believe that a man rose from the dead, the man Christ Jesus. You must believe that. So if we were to try to summarize what Paul's saying in this chapter, we might say something like this. If you deny our resurrection as believers, then you implicitly deny the resurrection of Christ because the two of them are connected. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, you lose everything. So you, you can't. You must hold to the resurrection of believers. And he, he argues that in verses 20 to 28. That's our text. But just to understand how the chapter flows and to continue to make sure that this is clear, verse 35 imagines Paul saying, all right, so believers will be raised from the dead. You're right, Paul. Let's say you're right. Well, then with what kind of body will we have? And how are we going to be raised? And he answers those questions in the verses that follow. Verse 42, he says that the bodies that we will get are going to be incorruptible and glorious and powerful. And then look at verse 51. He tells them directly the things that he's been getting at. And he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So they had a doctrinal error in their church. They were saying the resurrection of believers wasn't a thing that happens. And because of their error, Paul is going to make it very clear that believers do rise from the dead someday, and we should be certain of that. And so we are going to in some way benefit from their error because we, we get to see how Paul responds to it. And through this, I pray that the Lord will kind of wake us up from our drunken stupor, as Paul's saying, verse 29 and 30. Just that, uh, you know, we, are, we live distracted lives. We kind of navigate. It's difficult to get our head above water and look at our future hope. But Lord willing, by the end of this, we will see we have every right, every reason to be certain that this life is not all that there is and that we will rise from the dead. So, how can we be certain that we will rise from the dead? There are, we have three points this morning. Our first point is, our resurrection is certain because Jesus himself rose from the dead. Look at verse 20 with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that phrase? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's a word missing in verse 20 that has been in many of the verses before that, and that is the word if. There is no if in verse 20, and I love that. It's, it's awesome. In Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. On Sunday morning early, on the third day, when, those, when the women went with the perfume to anoint the corpse of Jesus, and they went to the tomb, what did they see? What did they find? And they found the tomb was open. And they found the tomb was empty. And what did they hear? 
they heard the voice of an angel say, why do you seek for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Amen. Our Savior is risen. He did not stay dead. And in verse 20, it's where Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus is inextricably tied to our own as believers. His made ours inevitable. And he says this using the metaphor of a first fruits. Now, uh, I'm not much of a farmer, actually. We, we do have farms in Michigan. On our way into, uh, into Delaware, we did notice that there are a lot of farms out here. So most likely there's some farming people here. And uh, this idea of the first fruits will resonate with you, I think. But for the rest of us, I want you to imagine planting a crop. And we'll, let's say corn, because I did see some corn, some corn fields out there. So you plant some corn. And as the corn is growing, it's all growing at a similar rate. It's all looking pretty good and healthy. And over time, you notice that man, this, this piece of the crop, this, this corner of the field, is really looking good. It's actually ready to harvest. So you go with your family, you, you take some ears of corn and you cook them up your favorite way and you eat them that night with your family and you enjoy them together, you thank the Lord for them. Well, as you're falling asleep that night, you have something of a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is coming. It's only a matter of time. You've already tasted the first fruits. So what does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits? It means, I think, if we were to ask God something like this, and I don't know if your heart has ever felt this, but just if, if our hearts cried out to the Lord and we said, Lord, how do I know that death is not the end for me? You resonate with that question at all? Sometimes it feels like death is really the end. But how do I know that death is not the end for me? Maybe you're struggling with, uh, you know it's not, but it's still a bit frightening to you. And you ask the Lord, how do I know death is not the end for me? Well, what could he say? He could say, come and see the empty tomb. Come and see the empty tomb. As sure as Jesus is not there, so is it sure that you will not remain in the grave. Just as I raised him, so will I raise you. And you will be given a body that is perfectly suited for an eternity and enjoyment with me it's only a matter of time because the first fruits have already been brought in. Christ, the first fruits, Paul says, and then those who belong to Christ. So embedded in the gospel, embedded in what Jesus did when he rose victoriously over sin, is our own future resurrection. Jesus secured it, and God guarantees it. So look at verses 21 and 23 as we continue. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now you, you are all well taught here, and so you're familiar with the idea that uh, Adam brought sin into the human race, and that brought death to all. And now for every human being who's ever lived or who is alive today, death is a certainty, unless the Lord were to return. And for those who have already dead, they have experienced this. Um, they've discovered this already by their experience. And sometimes when we look at a picture of someone from the past, maybe like the 1800s, and we see like a black and white picture or a painting, it just seems like they, they, were, they were real, right? But it's just like hard to relate to, to that. They seem two-dimensional. 
But the people of the past were not, were not all that different than you and me. The people of the past had hopes and dreams and they planned and they loved and they laughed just like all of you. And many of them, I'm sure, especially for the young ones, thought death would never come. And yet we stand at this point in history on this side of their lives and we can see that death does come and it has come for them, both believers and unbelievers alike. And death is certainly coming for each of us too unless Jesus returns. And there's sometimes this we can sometimes live in this place of false sense of control. You know what I mean? Like we live in this place where um, we have access to health care, we have access to finances, we have a family doctor we can see once a year. Um, as long as we have a bill of health, we can kind of imagine ourselves as somewhat in control. And yet we live in a place where the reality is we don't even have the power to make our heart beat one more time. And the next breath of air we take for granted, but it's not even guaranteed to go in. We just assume it will. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to present to you what is actually the reality of life in this fallen world. We don't actually have the control that we think we do. And we see here that in Adam all die. Uh, you may have heard that saying that Ben Franklin made famous uh, there, what does he say? Uh, now we, uh, he says, in this world, there are two things we can be certain of, right? Death and taxes. And we sometimes chuckle at that because taxes is part of that, that little formula he has. But he, he is onto something. He has a point. Uh, death is certain. And when you stare this, this reality in the face, it's a heavy thing to stare in the face. It's not something that human beings typically want to wake up in the morning and, and do, right? We'd, rather, we'd much rather just not think about it pretend that it doesn't exist or pretend that it's not coming for us. But when you stare the reality of the fact that in Adam all die, you need to stop if you're a believer and listen for his voice. Because that's when you hear him say, come and see the empty tomb. All those in Christ shall be made alive. Our resurrection is certain because Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not keep its grip on Jesus, though you know it tried. And neither will it be able to hold us. We will, as certain as the sun will rise tomorrow, whether or not the Delaware clouds hide it, it's there. And it will rise tomorrow. Just as certain as that is, you will be raised from the dead if you're a believer. With bodies that are glorious and incorruptible and new, specifically designed for an eternity with God, and yet somehow still you. And this will be how you live forevermore. We serve a risen Savior, and one day he will raise us. This is our great and glorious hope as believers, as followers of Christ. But I feel the need to warn a group this size because I don't know everyone's heart. I don't know where, you, where all of you are. Some of you may not be united to Christ by faith in him. And if that's the case, then this glorious hope that we have as believers, it doesn't apply to you, but it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus himself took your sins on his body, on the cross, and he paid the penalty in full. He died, and then he rose on the third day. He rose in victory over sin and death. And you can be forgiven of your sins, which are many, just like ours. You can be forgiven of your sins by believing this message and putting your hope in Jesus to save you, putting your faith in him to save you. You have the good gift of oxygen in your lungs now. So while you have the chance, 
Put your faith in Christ and be saved. I implore you to do that. But for those who are in Christ, which, by the way, I might add, we did not earn, did we? We did not deserve. No, we didn't. But the Lord had mercy on us. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the Lord can have mercy on you, too. And he desires to. So turn to him. But for those who are in Christ, by grace alone, our foundational basis for our certainty that we will rise from the dead is that our Savior is not dead right now. That he himself rose, and so will we. But there's kind of an order to this. You see that in verse 23. Um, Christ, the firstfruits, has already been raised. We'll have to wait till Jesus returns, and in this period of waiting, what we need is faith to believe that this is certain. And so may God give that to us. Now, let's look at another cause for certainty. Point number two this morning is our resurrection is, is certain because without it, God's final enemy gets the last laugh. Without our resurrection from the dead, God's final enemy gets the last laugh. Look at verse 24. Uh, Paul continues, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. Yes. Now, we talked about death a little bit. There, there does often seem that there's nothing more permanent in life than, in, than death. I was a pastor for eight years, and I've, I went to more funerals in that time than I ever had before. Um, death is something that happens. And when it happens to someone we love or someone we know, it does sometimes feel like, oh, it just gets the last laugh, right? It just feels like so wrong. shouldn't be this way. And it's painful, and it can be faith-shaking. But in these verses, Paul gives us an order of events of what's to come. He pictures a time when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father in this beautiful triune victory over everything. And it's a victory, you'll see, that only comes after he defeats every last one of his enemies. And what is the last enemy to be defeated? It's death. So the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of end for de of death. The end end of death, when death finally dies a death of its own, will be when every believer, every person who belongs to Christ, is raised from the dead. And verse 24 describes this culmination of God's work in creation. The, the Son handing the kingdom over in victory. That's too glorious to even, even imagine. But it's coming. And he does this after he's destroyed every rule and authority and power that stood against him. Think about it. Think about the power that has been standing against God and us from the beginning. Satan has been scheming against God from day, uh, day one that we see in, in, in the Bible. Remember what he's done from the tears of Eve to the shame of Adam and the murder of Abel to the betrayal of Jesus and the killing of to the betrayal of Judas and the killing of Jesus from beginning to end Satan has stood against God and all the death all the agony all the tears all the illness all the pain everything wrong with the world but here in a moment in verse 24 we see the glorious end when Jesus hands the kingdom to the Father in victory. And do you know what must be done before that great moment? You must be raised from the dead. 
That's what he said in verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, and then comes the end, those who belong to Christ. The glorious end only comes after you've been raised. And if you know Jesus, you know that he is not the kind of person to take alternative paths to glorious ends. He will not leave you dead because he's got his own thing to do. He forgot you. No. When he faced that temptation already on earth to take an alternative path to a glorious end, you remember what happened? Satan said to him, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. Be gone. That's not how we do things. That's not how I have planned to do it, and I will not do it. He's already dealt with the temptation to shortcut the plan. He won't. He will not shortcut the plan. So let me make this abundantly clear. The resurrection of Jesus set in motion a chain of events that results in him defeating his enemies. And the only way that he defeats his enemies is if you are resurrected from the dead. And so the only way you will not be raised from the dead is if God is not powerful enough to defeat his enemies. He is powerful enough to defeat his enemies. I assure you he will get the last laugh over his enemies. And that laugh will be a joyful laugh when all of his children are raised and all of Satan's schemes are utterly obliterated and all of the rifts that formed in creation because of sin are permanently mended, never again to go back to where they were. Our sin will be removed as far as the east is from the west. We will not have to deal with any kind of lingering flesh. Death will no longer cause us any fear, ever. It will no longer bring us any pain. It will no longer hang over us as an inevitable. We will never have to wonder what it will be like or when it may strike. We will never mourn again because death will be dead. Death will be dead. The last enemy will be gone. And again, the only way that this doesn't happen is if God lied or God failed or God misspoke or he was too weak or he forgot, or he got carried away with his own plan. No, that is not the God we serve. You will be raised. He said it. Jesus has already done it, and God guarantees it. And I think when that happens, we may sing a bit of a new song ourselves. Look at verse 54 of the same chapter. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. When that happens, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? You feel the taunt? That's a taunt. Death is being taunted because it tried its best and failed. Because God is stronger than death. And Jesus has already risen. So thanks be to our God. Our resurrection is certain because without it, God's final enemy will get the last laugh. God doesn't let enemies get the last laugh. He's the one who will get the last laugh. Our third and final point before we have a little application here is our resurrection is certain because without it, God's sovereign rule is not established. So I'll ask you to look back at uh, verses 27 and 8. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. We read, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now there are certainly some 
uh, confusing things in there, a lot of repeated words, difficult to see who's doing what there. But the main point is, is absolutely clear. The end of verse 28, the end of what God is trying to do and will do is that he will be all in all. Verse 28. What that means is when all of his enemies are defeated, God will be supreme in every quarter and in every way, as one man put it. Today, we live in a world where Satan still roams. We live in a world where believers still die. We live in a world where, where, where things are not as they will be or should be. And we feel that deeply. God is sovereign over all of that, yes. But there is coming a day when God will assert his sovereignty by defeating and destroying every one of his enemies and restoring things back to the way they should be. And we have a glimpse as to what that will look like from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are in the middle of the former things right now. We cry, we mourn, death still strikes, but God is going to wipe those tears away. He will. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so we will be forever with the Lord. Someday soon. So your future resurrection is about God establishing his sovereign rule over all things. You can be certain that he will do that. So as we said before, the only way you will not be resurrected from the dead is if God is incapable of ruling over all things. How laughable a statement that is. God will rule over all things, and to do so, he will defeat death by raising you. So I think this is one of the reasons why Paul gives a whole chapter to this, not only because it was a significant issue at Corinth, but because if you deny the resurrection of believers, you lose some very significant things. You lose God's sovereign rule. You lose the defeat of his enemies. You lose uh, the resurrection of Christ. And that is to say nothing about the kind of lawlessness and hopelessness that that would bring personally to you if you live this life as if this life was all that there is. Now, as we look to, to apply this, I, I want to point out again that the certainty of our resurrection, the fact that it is going to happen for sure, is an important motivation for sacrificial Christian ministry today. Because when you know deep in your soul that you will rise from the dead, that this life is not all that there is, then it frees you to live like it. You see that? It frees you to take costs. It frees you to miss out. It frees you to lose things. It frees you to take risks. And it even frees you to suffer in this life for Christ. And it frees you to work hard, toiling for the Lord with everything you have. 
until that final breath. Give it all to Jesus until that last breath. It frees you to do that when you live in the certainty of your resurrection. So let me ask you this. Do you live in the certainty of your resurrection? And I want to press into that a little bit, a little bit harder. I want to press on that. Because I'm, I'm not sure any here would deny a future resurrection for believers, at least intellectually. But as I said earlier, our resurrection does seem sometimes to be this thing that resides in the all too distant future. A future that affects another me, an older me. And if we're not careful, we can really get into this habit of like calculating how much longer we have until we have to think about certain things, right? So I'm 32, so if I do some math, uh, you know, maybe 40 years, but we'll take 10 off for some family history, you know. So I've got 30 more years to do whatever I want or, to, or just to, to kind of live for this life. And then eventually, you know, before the end, I'll, I'll remember, oh yeah, there's a resurrection coming for me. Man, what a, what a foolish way to think. And I'm talking to myself. Uh, when we don't realize, or when we, when we live as if this life is all that there is, we're prone to not living as we should today. Because when we push the end out of our minds, we do end up living as if this life is all that there is. And that, you might as well give a hunting license to sin for your soul. Because when you get your eyes off your future hope and you dive down into the waters with your snorkeling gear and you, all you care about is life here, then you are inviting the news, for example, to bring you fear. You're inviting someone's thoughtless comment to sprout bitterness in your heart because that's what really matters, me and my image right now. You invite discouragement in ministry to, to hinder future ministry. You invite darkness to rob you of your joy. You invite the love of things and the love of money to invade your heart and find a home. Who's willing to give up money? Only those who know that this is not the only thing that there is. Only those who know that this life is not all. You also invite the love of man's approval to dethrone the love of God. Again, because that's what really matters. And you invite countless other sins to manifest. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll see the results of people not living in light of their resurrection. It's chaos. And Paul has to, has to write a whole book to, to correct them. I really do think that there are only two options. Either we live in light of our future resurrection as believers today, or we live as if this life is all that there is. Now, as I said before, I'm not sure if there are any here who would deny the resurrection of believers intellectually. But I do think that sometimes the way we live can reveal a lack of faith that we will gloriously and bodily rise from the dead someday. So let me ask you, would your life look differently if you lived every day, not just today because you heard a sermon on it, but every day in the certainty of your resurrection? Would that change how you live? And if so, how would it change how you live? Think about that. Chew on that. How would it change the way you view death? We know death is not the end. How would it change the way you view death to, to really be certain that that's, that's not it? That's not the end. How would it change the way you handle hardships in life? Hardships are, are temporary. But they don't feel that way when you're right in the middle of a big one. But that doesn't change the fact that they are temporary. How would you live differently if you lived in the certainty of your resurrection? How would it affect your battle with sin? I've got 30 years to deal with this thing. I can work on it as I have energy. Eventually I'll get victory, but I got time. 
How the certainty of your resurrection. There's so many, it's, it's such a good thing that we have coming. So forget sin. Let's kick it off. Paul even says, says as much, I love this in verse 34 of the same chapter. It's another implication of the resurrection we don't have time to get into. But he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. He says, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's one of the, the, the uh, implications of our resurrection. Is just We need to stop sinning. And that is easier said than done. But I can guarantee you that when you're fueled by the hope of your resurrection, it's easier. It's a little bit easier. How would it affect your joy to live every day convinced of your resurrection? To live every day convinced that Revelation 21 is coming, even though you have tears now, the joy of God himself wiping them away would keep you. So I, I started this sermon by admitting to you that this, these truths are not going to be new. Um, you've probably believed in the resurrection for believers for some time now. But what I've been praying even as I'm speaking is that the Holy Spirit would be stirring in you a, a new, a stronger appreciation and a, a, a affection for what is coming and how good it is. And now the question is, briefly, what do we do with this newfound certainty in our resurrection? And I just want to point out to you quickly the last verse of this chapter. Because I think Paul gives us an idea of what a life lived in the certainty of our resurrections would look like. Uh, verse 58. You can tell there that it begins with the word therefore. And then chapter 16, verse 1 begins with the phrase, now concerning, and he changes subjects. So verse 58 really is kind of the summation of this whole conversation on resurrection, and Paul is going to say, so what do you do with this? And we read in verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Steadfast and immovable, that would describe us when we live in light of our future hope. Yes, circumstances are going to come, they're going to be hard, they're going to shake us, but someone who is steadfast and immovable because they have this certainty would look at those circumstances, and I don't say this lightly because as a pastor, I know the kind of circumstances that are probably out there are not light ones. This is not easy to do. But we look at our circumstances and we say, God, I don't understand what is happening, why this is happening. Then the faith wells up. And you say, but I know this life is not all that there is. And I know the next one will be better. And I know you will raise me to do an everlasting life, so I will not forsake you. You see, you strip circumstances of their power to, to hold over you all these, thing, all these things when you have your hope set on the future. So commit to believing these things and don't let anything rob you of what is yours in Christ. This hope is yours. So drive these truths deep, deep into your heart and then look at the world with a pilgrim's eye because this is not our home. Our home is coming. And when those doubts and hardships do come, put your eyes on your future hope and let nothing rob you of that. We also see that we're, we're not only to to be this way, but we're also to always abound in the work of the Lord. And that's where I get the idea of sacrificial ministry. 
because the words there that Paul uses, work and labor, they imply hard work. They imply spiritual sweat. They imply, uh, you know, things that are not easy to do. But you do them, and you give up things, and you sacrifice of yourself. Because you know that whatever you give up in this world, serving Christ, it's worth it. Knowing, he says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we have a job to do. God has given a job, given us all a job to do, to take our part in the Great Commission. And we do that at whatever cost. I, wa- I, I want to say a word to, to my teammate. Um, because we're right in the middle of um, kind of like a long, a long prolonged goodbye, right? A lot of different things are they're kind of the last things we're doing. We want to leave well. We want to do the last things well. And this is kind of a hard, a hard period to be in because it's when, when you're going to be tempted with that poisonous thought, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? I mean, like, uh, they sold their house. They, they've got all these um, things that they're working through. They're gonna, kids are being pulled from grandparents and all this stuff. It's craziness except for the fact that it's not. Because this life is not all that there is. And so I just wanted to say, keep on. Uh, If you can tell, I'm preaching a sermon to myself too, you know? Because it is motivation to keep on. And to... In the end, all of our labor for the Lord will be worth it. So, um, I, my prayer is that your faith has, has welled and you, you have a, uh, a new appreciation for the certainty of what's coming for you. Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. You've given this church and me and my teammates a job to do while we're here. And just to be a Christian in this world, to be a follower of Christ, will require us to lose certain things, to give up privileges, to set aside things that the world gets to it's to enjoy for about one or two seconds. And in the end, they wind up realizing that it didn't satisfy and so they must chase another experience. We know deep in our hearts that living for this world is not, not even worth it, but we do admit to you that it is tempting. And we ask for strength and we ask for you to... Um, Help us to always abound in the work of the Lord in the specific task that you've given us, both for this church. My prayer, Lord, is for you to raise up the saints at this church to be hard at work, giving up things and and sacrificing time and energy and money to be about what you've called them to be here. And I pray that you would drive the hope that they have, that is their privilege and right in Christ, 
deep into their hearts so that tomorrow when they don't have a sermon on the, on the hope of the resurrection, they still have hope. Yes. And may you preserve and keep them until the end when they meet you and see you and are made like you. And grant the same to um, my family and the hosts. Help us all to abound in the ways you've called us to, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen.